every area of life, something or someone stands at the center by which that area of life is identified and against which all others in that area are, uh, are measured. I mean, you can't tell the story without that person or about that place or that event. So say we're talking about baseball power hitters. I think everybody immediately thinks of Babe Ruth. Right now, the, the most uh, popular and the, the personality of Major League Baseball is a player by the name of Shohani Otani. He is a Japanese player, plays for the Los Angeles Angels, and he pitches and he hits just like Babe Ruth. And all the comparisons are to Babe Ruth. Well, let's say we were talking about ancient Egyptian culture. Well, we immediately think of the, the pyramids and, and what they show us. <clears throat> Well, then if we think about, say, uh, tech advances and those geniuses that have made that progress, you can't tell that story when they're talking about Steve Jobs and the Mac and the iPod and the iPad and the iPhone and whatever else is going to come. Think about the United States and our form of government. You're going to see the United States Capitol as a center of those kind of things. You, you know those stories, but you also can identify those persons or places in your own story take those persons out. There's no story, or the story is dramatically different. This year, we have been considering life in the kingdom of God. When we talk about the kingdom of God, we're talking about the fact that God is a sovereign king who's perfectly governing all things for his purposes and for the glory of King Jesus. And we have been carefully walking through the whole Bible to see exactly how God's plan unfolds. We saw at the beginning that God created all things and spoke it into existence, said it was very good. And then we saw that there was sin and rebellion against God that unleashed chaos on the world, beginning at that point, continuing to this very week. Think about just the headlines we have seen. This elementary school shooting in Uvalde, Texas, and the 19 precious children who were just massacred in their classroom. And that has knocked off our headlines, which has been dominating for the past several months. And that is the war in Ukraine, where they found 200 more bodies this week in Mariupol. We've heard about cover-ups of sexual abuse. We've heard about shortages of baby formula, the outbreak of monkeypox, in addition to millions of just purposeless lives trying to make their way through. I think we all know the world's a mess. It's jacked up. It's broken in a thousand different ways. But God in his mercy and kindness saw that from the beginning and also planned from the beginning to restore all things back the way he intended them. So when we walk through the Older Testament, we saw that in the Old Testament, there are promises made of God's rescue to come. The first promise was, was to Adam, where God says, I'm going to send one born of woman who will be the one through whom a rescue and restoration will come. The plan is activated through one man named Abraham who had a family. The family became a tribe. The tribe became a nation. And there were kings. And the chief of those kings was King David. And it was from the line of King David that the prophets then say, there's a Messiah, the anointed one who's going to come. He'll be the one to rescue, to put things back together again. That's the Old Testament. And then in the New Testament, if the Old Testament are promises made that God has, then the New Testament are the promises God kept about this Messiah, about this one born of woman who would come. Jesus Christ came and born and lived and died and rose again. Now the fact that between the Old Testament and the New Testament, over thousands of years and different writers on different continents and different cultures, there's one cohesive story that is not a happy religious coincidence. 
The reality is there was a plan in the mind and heart of God to rescue rebels and restore things back the way God meant them to be. So what is it that stands at the center of that story is both a who and a what. It is who, Jesus Christ, and the what is his bloody cross on which he died in our place. The cross is the universally recognized symbol of Christianity. You can't tell the story without it, and nothing makes sense without it. The sacrifice of Jesus for sin stands at the center of God's kingdom plan. But why? Why would an instrument of brutal, inhumane execution become the defining center and symbol of God's message of love to the world? Now, we're going to discover the answer to that was we explore Jesus' conversation with a man named Nicodemus. It's recorded in John chapter 3. So if you go ahead and turn there to the Gospel of John chapter 3. And, and, and just we get there and we're going to find out about this man Nicodemus who was a respected leader among the Jewish people. He was a Pharisee. He was part of a, a religious party of many Jewish people who had been immersed in the scriptures since he was a boy and loved God's word and wanted to order all things by God's word. He longed for God's people to live holy lives. So he's part of a faith system that was strong and trusted and defining and comfortable and had developed over hundreds of years. But then Nicodemus began to hear stories about this rabbi from Galilee named Jesus. Now, most of the Pharisees just dismissed Jesus out of hand. He was just another rabble-rouser trying to start a rebellion movement. These had come up and flowered and fallen over and over. There were dozens of them. He's just a troublemaker. Ignore him and he'll go away. But Nicodemus, he heard about the teaching and the miracles and the life change around Jesus. And then the more he heard, the more intrigued he became. And he began to wonder, is he the one? the one we've been looking for and waiting for. And so he arranged for a private after-hours meeting with Jesus. Near the end of the conversation that we have recorded between Jesus and Nicodemus, Jesus utters some of the most famous words uh, that are recorded in Scripture. Most people, even those who aren't Christians, know them, or at least they've seen the reference to them held up on a sign in the end zone at a football game. <laughs> uh, but we're going to hear this morning. So would you stand in honor of the reading of God's Word? Levi's going to come, and he's going to read for us uh, these verses that Jesus spoke. We're going to be in John chapter 3, beginning in verse 14 through verse 18. Let's hear the Lord's word. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. This is the Lord, the Lord, which stands forever. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Levi. You can be seated. Thanks. Be seated. So we know those verses. That's where Jesus ends. But I want to rewind to hear the thoughts and the heart that led to that moment. So still in, in chapter 3 of John, let's hear beginning in verse, verse 2. 
This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher from God, for no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. So we said the sacrifice of Jesus for sin sends at the center of God's kingdom. Why? First of all, it points to our soul's desperate need. Our soul's desperate need. Now there in verse 2, Nicodemus begins with a compliment. He's saying, Jesus, I've been watching you. I've been listening to what you're, you're saying. And I, it's a genuine sign of respect. I, I want to affirm that, that God is with you and that, that you're truly of him. And I've evaluated it. And I, I approve this. You're the, you're the real deal. But you notice immediately in verse 3, Jesus ignores the compliment altogether and redirects the conversation. His goal is not getting a thumbs up from the Pharisees. He's not looking to get a check mark in that, in that way. He has a singular focus, and that is urging people to enter a relationship with God as king and to live in his kingdom. And he makes it simple and very uncomplicated. There's only one requirement to get in. You must be born again. You must be born again. Now, there's no options in that, is there? The word must. Uh, people generally don't like ultimatums, especially when it comes to moral choices. They'll say, well, if you love me and respect me, you'll give me a, a, a bunch of choices that I can choose which one seems to work best for me. But Jesus says, you must be born again. And he actually in that moment is doing the most loving and respectful thing he can do by telling Nicodemus the truth. There's another place in the Bible where Jesus refers to himself as a doctor or a physician for the soul. And the one that we love when we go to the doctors, we want doctors to tell us the truth. It's the only way to health. Here's the truth. The only way into a relationship with God to please him, to know him, to live in his kingdom, to settle our eternal destiny is not about associating with the right people, getting the right knowledge, having certain feelings, or doing the right spiritual moral things in the right sort of way, in a kind of consistent way. No, Jesus says you must be born again. And that little word must, in actuality, blew up the whole Pharisees' religious system. And it blows up the way most of us tend to think about how things with God work. Because here's what he's saying. The kingdom and knowing God is not about what you do. It's about who you are. Not about what you do. It's about who you are. You must be born again. He says, now listen, that's more than a do-over. Remember we used to do that on the playground when we were children? And they throw the ball and you whiff it. He say, do-over, <laughs> right? We're starting over again. It's like it never happened. Start, this is not a do-over. Neither is it just a moral makeover. Taking the same basic structure of our life, adding a few little external changes, polishing things up a little bit, freshing the look, freshing our actions, and doing life a little differently. No, it's neither that. You must be born again. Being in the kingdom requires that we completely start over. 
as new and a prof new and profoundly different person. Now, why is that necessary? Because on our own, we are spiritually unqualified to enter God's kingdom. Every person there has to match God's character, which is holy, morally pure, without any blemish at all in any way, in motives internally or action, and righteous, which means that we perfectly match God's standard of what's good and beautiful and true. But here's what the Bible says about us as, as humanity. It says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, now let's be, be clear here. Sin is not an oopsie, <laughs> missed it. You know, that's not what sin is. Sin is rebellion against the creator and the very source of our life. Sin is a declaring a war for the control of the throne of our life. It blows God off, leaves God to the side, says, you stay over there, I've got this, I'm in control. All have sinned. We are rebels. And Romans 3 verse 10 says, there is none righteous, no, not one. So we are neither holy nor righteous. We are actively unholy and unrighteous, which makes us guilty before God. But worse than that, the Bible says, not only are we spiritually unqualified, we are spiritually dead people who cannot enter into God's kingdom. So Ezekiel 18 says, the soul that sins shall die. Romans 6, the ways of sin is death. Ephesians 2, we're dead in trespasses and sins. Here's what we know about dead people. Dead people can't think or feel or act or speak or see or move or respond. And the same thing is true of our souls spiritually apart from God. God, the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit has been eternally in this relationship that is throbbing with life. And that kind of life and death can't occupy the same space. You've got to have the same kind of life together in that moment. We don't have that. So here's the reality about who we are. Apart from anything that God might do, we are spiritually guilty and spiritually dead. And even worse than that, there's nothing any one of us can do to change any of those things. Ephesians 2 says, you are saved not as a result of works, there's other translations say by your own actions, by things you've done as a result of your efforts, by anything you did or could achieve. The first step into God's kingdom, God's plan is this, is to deal with the bad news that apart from God, on my own, on your own, you are the, the, the me that I am, the you that you are on our own is both spiritually guilty and spiritually dead and cannot step into God's kingdom. That's why we must have a complete start over as a profoundly different person. Now, do you get now why Nicodemus says, how? I can't go back and be born out of my mother's womb again. How is that gonna, how's that gonna work? And Jesus makes it clear in verses five and six, there's a need for two births. Look what he says. Unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. There's a need for two births. The fact that you're here this morning, your heart's beating, you have brain waves, your lungs are expanding, means you've already had the physical, natural birth, the fleshly birth of your physical life. 
What we need is a birth for our soul by the Holy Spirit. Now, in all of this, Jesus is building on what God told the prophet Ezekiel centuries before. Here, the promise was made. Here's what was made. He said, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I'm going to take out that which is dead as a hammer, dead as a rock inside of you. And I'm going to give you something that's tender and living toward the things of God. I'm going to do it. No God's initiative. I will. I will. I will. Why is the cross at the center of God's plan? Because it points to our desperate need and it points to God's complete provision. God's complete provision. This born-again experience only happens by God's actions to provide what we need. And there are two impulses here. God's provision comes through the hidden power of his life. The hidden power of his life. Look in verse 8. It says, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now, wind is invisible but has real impact where it blows. But there is a certain mystery to it. There's a certain mystery to this whole thing. And the way God accomplishes this heart change, this heart transplant, has a certain mystery to it. And again, Nicodemus says what he always asks, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? For all his biblical study of the Old Testament, he knew it so well. For all his theological training, Nick is befuddled by what Jesus is saying. It had never occurred to him that life in the kingdom of heaven could never be developed by using earthly materials. That to live in the kingdom of heaven would never be accomplished by just what we have and can do on earth. So the key reality that's being pointed here is that the new life required for the kingdom is external to us and our experience. It is independent of us. It is external of us in that way. It comes from outside of us. Born again in the language of the Bible literally means born from above. That God sovereignly, specifically acts to perform a heart transplant. To set that heart that was dead beating again. So I've read some accounts of what goes on in heart transplant surgeons. What happens? You've heard the stories of what will happen. They've got a patient on the, the table with a, with a dead or dying heart. And they, they open their, their chest and they remove from their body this dead heart and set it aside. They take a new and living and healthy heart and put it inside the chest. They reattach the coronary arteries that are there. Then they take these little paddles and begin to, 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 to give it one little electric pulse to set it being again. And in that moment, Everybody in the operating room is holding their breath. Nobody's moving. Nobody's making a sound because they're waiting to hear beep, beep, beep. Waiting to hear that heartbeat signal on that monitor that it comes. And they said every single time it happens, it's like a miracle 
all over again. Listen, only God can cause a spiritually dead heart to start beating. Big term for that is regeneration. Again, life. He takes a heart that cares nothing for God, all of a sudden wants to know God, wants to think about God, wants to lean towards God, and that's fantastic. That takes care of our soul death, and it's a miracle every single time. So God provides through the hidden power of his life, but God also provides through the saving gift of Christ's death. You see this new heart. We need something new as its focus, as its center, as its source. It's been set beating for what? What's it to do? Now listen, if a heart transplant has been in that emergency room, goes right back home and begins to eat five guys burgers, a quart of bluebell ice cream, and lays around on the couch every day, that heart is going to soon be just as diseased as it was before. There's a change. Something different happens here we got a new heart spiritually. He set our heart beating, and that's fantastic. What's the response? What's the heart beat that is there? Now we get back to these very familiar verses. But there's a powerful context that happens before and after the verse we know so well that, that we rarely see. Verses 13 through 15 refer to specific Old Testament passages that Nicodemus, for all his study, would have known very, very well. So look at verse 13. He says, No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And that little phrase, Son of Man, is from a vision from the prophet Daniel, affirming that the Messiah would come from heaven, break into earth, to reign over an eternal kingdom that could not be destroyed. That's Jesus. This is defining, this is who Jesus is. He's the king who has come broken into our world. Then verses 14 and 15, uh, it's an odd part of the history of Israel. You may remember the people of Israel were in slavery in Egypt for 400 years. Years God sent Moses to deliver by miracles. They're completely set free. And they begin their journey to the promised land. And along the way, God provided guidance, pillar of fire by, by night and a cloud by day. There was protection and provisions. There's food. There's the manna from heaven. There's water from the rock. And the people grumbled constantly. Constantly, they're grumbling in the middle of all of this. They distrusted God. They disobeyed God. They were warring against God. Let us just go back to Egypt. And so one more day, they woke up and complained about this miracle food that showed up every morning, that kept them alive, and that they had not to do nothing for. They just showed up. They complained one more morning, and God just had enough. And so God judged them. And the Bible says by sending fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many died. This is the way it works. Sin brings guilt. Guilt brings judgment. Judgment brings death. It's the way it goes when we deal with sin. And people come to Moses and they say, you got to help us. you got to rescue us. Get us out of this. So Moses prayed. And God has an answer. He says this, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent, set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. God had a design. God had a plan for the rescue. And here's what he told them. Look up at what God has provided, 
Trust that what God has provided is what you need to be healed and rescued and you'll live. Look up, trust what God's provided, and you will live. Look, we already saw the reality. We're all sinners, right, under the judgment of God. We are all poisoned and dying by our own sin. And so what he says here in verse 14 and 15, As Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. He's saying, look at what God's provided. And that's the next verse. Let's read together what Jesus says. Read this out loud together. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. He's saying, this is your only hope, just like it was for them. Here's what you got to know, that even in your sin and rebellion, even in my sin and rebellion, your creator and king loves you ferociously. And he's provided a way for your rescue. So what's he saying to you? He's saying, believe in Jesus, believe in what he's done. He's saying, look up at the one God has provided. Look up at his only son on the cross, perfectly sinless, but dying as a sacrifice in our place, taking our penalty, taking our death on himself. Look up at him and trust that that sacrifice that God has provided is your only hope for forgiveness and for healing and for restoration and live. You look up, you trust, and you live. And that's what he has provided for us. Steve Richardson tells a story of how when he was just five years old, his parents, Don and Carol Richardson, moved with him to Papua New Guinea. Papua New Guinea is in the southwest Pacific Ocean, just northeast of Australia, a whole band of islands there. And they moved there to bring the gospel, his parents were missionaries, to bring the gospel to an an unreached, unengaged people group. That means they'd never heard of Jesus and had no part of the Bible or anything to help them get to know who Jesus was. They arrived and they were assigned to a tribe in the village of Kamur. Now, Kamur was in the swamps. All the people in that, those villagers lived in tree houses 40 feet above the swamp. Now, there's a practical reason for that. You can't build stuff in a swamp, and up higher you get a breeze, there's a little better way to live, but also it was for their protection. Because that whole society of that tribe and all the tribes around them were built on violence and animosity between one another, between people, between tribes. Uh, did I mention they were headhunting cannibals? <laughs> So here's this little family of white people in their dugout canoe <laughs> coming down, right? And they arrive, and here's all the warriors on both sides of the river with their spears, headhunting cannibals, and they welcome them joyfully. They were so glad to see them. They invited them in. They helped them build their own tree house as they were there. They settled among them, began to live and serve and love those people, began to learn the language. As they began to learn the language, they began to explain the Jesus story. And so one time they gathered all the men, they gathered in a, in a specific hut for their, uh, for their councils and discussed things the tribe needed to do. And they began to tell the, the Jesus story with the, the men who were there. And they came to the part about Judas's betrayal of 
Jesus. And, and so there was, there was a lot of laughter in the room. They're slapping each other on the back. And he says, uh, why? And they say, they want to know more about Judas. Why do you want to know about Judas? I'm here to tell you about Jesus. And, and no, no, we want to know about Judas. Why? Well, he sounds like one of us. And one man said, I'd love to promise my daughter in marriage to a man like Judas. Why in the world would you want to do that? He said, well, we do that. When we see someone from another tribe, we don't kill them right away. We befriend them. We invite them in. We make them an ambassador between our two tribes. And several months later, we give a feast and send them in the feast. We give a signal. We take out our spears. We kill them and we eat them. The word they used there was to do with a man as with a pig. That's what we do with them. Four of the tribes had moved near. So there's five tribes around, all intrigued by these white people. But there was constant conflict breaking out between them. So the missionary, Don, said, you have to make peace. That's why we came. That's our message. If you can't make peace, if this continues, we'll have to, we'll have to leave. And the people loved them. They desperately, desperately wanted them to stay. Uh, and so there were many conversations among the people into that night. The next morning, the missionary was with his language tutor. He heard a great commotion outside. He rushed out expecting to find another battle. But what he saw was one of the warriors had grabbed up his newborn son out of the arms of his mother and had run off. The mother was lying prostrate on the ground, just wailing, crying out over and over again, why does it have to be us? Why does it have to be us? And they watched the man ran through the forest to the nearest tribe of their bitterest enemy at all and left the child with that tribe. Don asked the language leader, what is going on? He said, well, you've been telling us to make peace, right? Here, the only way to make peace is by giving one of our own babies to the enemy. Are they going to hurt that baby? He said, no, 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 no. No, peace only lasts as long as that baby lives, they said. The adopted one of their families take as good a care of him as possible because if anything happens to him, warfare can resume without notice. Everything hinges on his life. He said, that sounds very familiar. Two parties at war, one wanting peace so much, they're willing to, to give their only son as a basis of peace with the enemy. It was the gospel. He began to ask more questions. What do you call this baby? So we call this baby the Taropim. The Tharopim, the peace child. He asked a few more questions. And so a few days later, he gathered all the men again. They're in the room where they, they had their councils and their war councils and all those things. And again, he tells them the Jesus story. Only this time, he tells them about Jesus being the, the Al-Kadom Tharopim, God's peace child. And the same man who said that about marrying his daughter to Judas before said, why didn't you tell us that the first time? The missionary said, I didn't know it was an important detail. He said, detail, he said, it changes everything. The worst thing anyone can do is betray a peace child. When the peace child comes, all the warriors gather in a circle and one by one, they put their hand on the child and say, I accept this child as the basis for peace with my enemy. He said to the missionary, oh, I, I want to do this with Al-Kadon, would you tell him for me that I want, I want Jesus to be my peace child? And the missionary said, oh, you, you can do that yourself. Just tell him you trust Jesus to be your peace with him. And the man prayed to receive Christ as his peace and his only hope. And then he said, can my family do this? And they said, oh, absolutely. This great movement of God broke out among those people. Because see, here's what believing is is believing who Jesus is. He's the king who came. 
and what Jesus did on the cross to take care of our soul's death with Christ's life and our soul's guilt with Christ's death. He provides a way, but there remains one more piece, and that is our critical response. Once you know the truth of who Jesus is and what Jesus did, and now you know because I just told you, you will respond. And there's no neutrality here. The response, Jesus describes it in verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. The only two possible responses to seeing what God's plan is with his sacrifice. And those two responses will describe two different realities of your spiritual standing before God and your eternal destiny. The first response is you can believe. And we talk about believing, we're not just talking about affirming the facts about Jesus, but about setting your affections and, and your heart toward him, submitting in allegiance to him. And so you see when the wind blows, that God moves, and God stirred in your heart toward him, we don't see the wind, but we see the effects of it. We see the leaves moving and things like that. When God moves to bring life inwardly, there's something that's going to be seen outwardly. What is that? There's going to be sorrow for sin, sorrow for living apart from God, and repentance or turning away from that sin, and also belief or trust, expressing your confidence that only Jesus is your only hope for God, that you've looked, you've trusted, and now you want to believe that for yourself. And once that is expressed to God, the Bible tells us that brings peace to the war with God. So we're reconciled. We're no longer condemned, but forgiven. We're adopted as children. We're, we're rescued and secured and, and protected. And our future is to be alive forever as a free citizen of heaven forever and ever in his presence. And, and we have hope for every single moment. Or the other option is that you would not believe. Say, yeah, yeah, I got the facts about Jesus, but I'm not going to do anything with it. My heart really, I don't want to do that. I don't want to submit myself to him at, at all. If that's where you stand, then your war with heaven continues. It means you stand guilty and condemned before your creator without possibility of parole, that you are alone and separated from God, that you are vulnerable to the devil and hell and death and your future. Your only future is to be a captive resident of hell now and in torment and regret forever. And there is no hope apart from Jesus. Friends, those are the only two options when we respond to God's plan and what he provided. Now look back at verse 17. What is Jesus' heart for you? He says, I don't want to condemn you. I want to rescue you and give life with me in the kingdom. The sacrifice of Jesus for sin stands at the center of God's kingdom plan. There's only one way to enter the kingdom, and that's through repentance of sin and belief in him. So my question is, before God this morning, have you? I'm not asking if you like Jesus. Have you, have you, do you like the things about Jesus? Do you think it's a good moral example? No. Have you repented and believed and trusted him? If so... What I want to urge you is to rejoice in that, be grateful for that, and live your life like somebody who's been rescued. 
live every single day with a passion and a life and a purpose like somebody who's been rescued. Invite other people to join in, gladly obey him and, and follow him because you've been rescued and you belong to him and you owe him your life. Everything hinges on him. So you rejoice in that. But if you're here and you've not trusted Christ, today is your day of rescue. The Bible says, all the call in the name of the Lord will be saved. I don't know how to do that. How do I do that? Just tell him. Tell him you realize you're in trouble and in desperate need because of your sin. Admit that you're a sinner, that you've left him out. You've not trusted him. You've not valued him. Turn away from the sin. Tell him you want the war to be over. And tell him that you want to turn to his provision in Jesus. They want Jesus to be your peace child. Tell him that you believe that he loved you, that he sent Jesus. Tell him that you want to believe that Jesus' death was enough to take away your sin. Tell him that you obey him and trust him as king. Let me just urge you today, please don't delay. Because you don't know. You don't know how much time you have on this earth, on this side of reality. You don't know. Is another 10 years maybe? It's another 10 minutes, uh, another 10 seconds. You don't know. Turn to him, run to him, fly to him. The old hymn says it this way. Come, ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, love, and power. Come, you weary, Heavy, laden, lost, and ruined by the fall. Catch this. If you tarry till you're better, you'll never come at all. Let not conscience make you linger, nor a fitness fondly dream. I'll get my act together someday, and then I'll come. He says all the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. And the hymn says, I will arise and go to Jesus. Run to him. So as we end today, we want to celebrate those two realities that may be going on here this morning. We want to celebrate the realities of our living hope in Christ. If you're here today and you know him, maybe you haven't done this in a while, it might be good just to come and kneel here and just to say, thank you, Jesus. Help me live like a rescued person. If you have not, we're going to ask our care leaders to come here to the front. I'll be down here. You want to pray with someone and talk about your own stepping across from death to life. This is your time. So you come. So everybody stand together. And as we continue to worship the Lord and celebrate over the reality of what Christ has done. Lord, we are grateful that you have moved and worked in our hearts today. And we pray that you would do your work even now among those who know you, who might live for you. Among those, Lord, maybe until this moment have not. Will they celebrate that with us? Let us celebrate that with them, that life has come where death was. You are our living hope. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.